And hello, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a conversation with a writer that I have long wanted to talk to, but only got my first chance quite recently. Richard Rodriguez uh, has a new book out. It is called Darling, a Spiritual Autobiography. It's his first in over 10 years. It's about many things, but uh, chiefly faith. Richard is a Catholic, and he's been thinking a lot about the place of religion in our times and in his life, especially in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. And it's about love, and it's about death. Richard, you see, is not one for trivial subjects. He never has been. As uh, I'm sure you know, if you've read his writing over the years in publications like Harper's or Time or Salon, or uh, if you've seen his TV commentaries, uh, the ones they used to run on the PBS NewsHour, or if you've had a chance to read his books, which include The Hunger of Memory, Days of Obligation, and Brown. Richard is a uh, much-admired practitioner of a kind of memoiristic-slash-philosophical-slash-literary essay. Sorry for all the slashes, but his work is hard to uh, categorize. I think of it almost as a kind of travel writing, traveling through our own shared history and culture and also through the very particular experience of one man. And there's that same sense of discovery and uh, being taken places you never expected to go that you find in the best travelogues. And uh, though Richard says that essays don't get a lot of respect these days out there in the publishing world, they certainly do on this show. So uh, stay tuned for my interview with Richard Rodriguez. Richard, first of all, thank you so much for thank joining you. me thank on you. the show. What feelings come to your mind when I say the name of the Sacred Heart Church at 39th <laughs> and J Streets in Sacramento? Well, I was just recently there for a magazine piece. They took me back, like dragged me like the old Pope, you know, uh, on a little wagon with his clown hat. And I must say that over the years, I've come back to that church where I spent so many years as a boy on the altar, an altar boy, watching funerals and weddings and watching the, the, the shadows of, of light in early morning, late afternoon. What comes back to me is probably this extraordinary sense of the great European church that I used to belong to in Sacramento, California, a church in which the, it's, the windows were imported from Dublin, in which the altar um, itself was was reminiscent of a kind of high European architectural tradition. Uh, and the music, Anton Dorndorf was the music director from Austria, and there was Mozart in Sacramento. And it, it, it still has that tradition within a Romanesque architecture. So in, in, in various ways, I was convinced as a boy that I was a Roman Catholic. That is, my spirituality came from Europe, and that uh, whether it was Irish at the schools or Irish at the pulpit, the priests and the nuns were all Irish, not Irish Americans, Irish, or the music, which was Austrian, um, that incredible sense that I was within a European memory of God, and that's what Sacred Heart Church still reminds me of. So a cultural and aesthetic experience, what about the spiritual dimension? Well, I mean, St. Augustine says when you sing, you pray twice. Uh, when Antoine Dornzor's choir sang Mozart, I was praying twice too. The beauty of the place was a kind of portal to spirituality. It wasn't a distraction from it. The distraction, perhaps, now in, in retrospect, I remember when I got to Stanford, my mother had put with a 
a safety pin, a small cross crucifix in my luggage. And this kind of elegant young man came into the room to watch me unpack. I don't know what, it, what interest he found in that. He was from Belgium, I remember. He said, I suppose you're a Roman, he said. And I was going to say, no, I'm, I'm Mexican. <laughs> and then I realized what he meant, that I was Roman. And I said, it was the first time anybody had ever said that to me, that you're Roman. And uh, I wish it were true. I wish <laughs> I wish I was one of those beautiful boys uh, uh, sauntering around Rome at this moment. Um, and I, I stumbled and I said, oh, yes, I am a Roman. But it was it was that memory in this book of essays concerned with the desert God, with the God of the Jews and Christians and Muslims, who reveals himself within a Middle Eastern desert that I began to, to reevaluate and that it seemed to me that this, that this romance that I had, beginning with boyhood, with being a Roman Catholic, was not false, but it was certainly not as bracing and not as shocking as what I now know, and that is that I belong to the desert mm. through my religion. That Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all came from the Semitic region, a desert region, uh, and they're all linked, um, one building on the other, uh, well, with one, modifications. Yes, <laughs> and one borrowing from the other too. Right, and right. there is this this um, knowledge that I, I suppose I learned through the madness of September 11th, listening to those men at the last moment of their lives and their passengers' lives, and the people in the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, um, praying to God. And I thought to myself later that they were praying to my God. In Indonesia, Christians pray to Allah. Uh, it drives a number of Muslim radicals crazy, but that's the name that they grow up using for God. It's not Yahweh, but it's Allah. Hmm. And that in some way, what I felt as a Christian was that I was hearing myself pray and that I was remembering in that moment the violence of Christians in the Middle East against other religions. Um, a violence which, by the way, uh, Arabs will be happy to re remind you of mm. <laughs> as you travel to the region. Uh, I remember there's there's a, a Muslim family which has for hundreds of years been given the responsibility for opening what is probably the holiest church in Christendom, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which which encloses the space which tradition has always established was the was God uh, was laid to rest with Jesus was laid to rest after his crucifixion and uh, the tomb where he was he was laid to rest and then he was he was uh, resurrected well the, the the churches that gather within this large basilica have been quarreling for hundreds of years and it fell to a muslim family to keep the key to the church and this Muslim family opens up the doors to the holiest site of Christendom every morning at four in the morning when the music is singing, you know, the praise to Allah uh, from the tower. Um, there is the old Muslim uh, coming down the, the street of, of Jerusalem to open up the Christian's church. It's, <laughs> that journey, which I took with this old man one morning at four in the morning, and then he stopped at the door, this wonderful, heavy door, which he was opening he pointed to the, the space above the doorway and along the side of the, the door, this great, great space. He said, do you see those little chip marks, he said? Those were made by crusaders when they came to this church. And they marked their entrance by, by, by indenting with their, with their, with their spears the, the building. 
Desecrating the building. No. Well, desecrating the building and saying, you know, I was here. Wow. <laughs> but, but it's that close. It, you know, in his mind, he sees that every morning as he makes this Christian shrine available to Christians. Well, you wrote about your visit to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Part of this exploration you undertook after September 11, 2001. Yes. The origins of these three so-called Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You wrote of it that your experience looking at the, is it the tomb? Am I, is yes. that the right term? Was one of emptiness. Yes. A the, vacancy. A vacancy. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. The cave has been taken away. You're entering an empty space. Again and again in Jerusalem, I, I had that sense that everything that was holy was empty. And that the city in some way, this great city that was dreamed up, you know, Jerusalem was dreamed into being in the desert. And it is, it is in that sense, a, a desert city. But all of its sacred spots seemed to struck me as being profoundly empty. And I don't mean empty of pilgrims or empty of, of interest, but I mean that they, uh, when I go to the uh, the great mosque, on, you know, that that is on top of um, the temple that the, the Jews... The Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's right. Yeah. The, 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 the extraordinary beauty of Arabic architecture, particularly in, in, and you see this in the great mosques of, of the Middle East, is the way they mimic the emptiness of the desert. They are vast, empty spaces. And it is that the sense of, of moving into a place that is empty, that is almost a kind of parody of, of the sky at night, you mm. know, the, this great sky overhead, the great ceiling of the temple, that the, that the architecture seems to accept the paradox of the desert that I find very beautiful and very thrilling. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of times in mosques when I, when I was traveling to <laughs> the Middle East. I still have favorite ones and ones that I pray in even. Well, mosques have their vast cavernous domes. The European cathedrals have their vaults, these big high spaces. Are they meant to suggest an emptiness that is waiting to be filled or is filled by God and so isn't empty at all? Well, I, th there's that possibility. Is also these this emptiness is filled by by faith, by people mm. praying, mm. by by voices, mm. uh, and there, there are very few moments in some of these mosques, in most of these mosques, where where you feel um, the only person there. Uh, there are, there's, there's always life around you, and always in these mosques, because so much of the worship takes place on the on the on the ground. There are these carpets, these meadows of red and green and blue, and I mean the most astonishing innovation of these desert people was to create within the privacy of their tents color against the, the 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 beige of the desert you walk into one of these spaces and you are assaulted mm. with the consolation of beauty you mm. know and that's where you pray mm. and the whole notion of the magic carpet that that you are transported mm. while you are on this carpet i think is a popularization for children of what uh, Muslims would say happens to you as you pray on the floor of the of the mosque. You are transported. Well, how do you feel then about that contrary position or tradition uh, in, say, Christianity of asceticism, stripping away the ornament, saying that you can find God more perfectly in an empty cell of a monastery or in a stripped-down Quaker church than in some ornate, you know, posh Catholic cathedral? 
you know, with all of its stained glass and incense and all of that. I, I probably would agree to it. My, my own tradition is such that I have prayed for so many years in ornate churches that I, would, I find um, the empty church, that is the stripped-down model, to be very exciting. It's sort of like coming upon a modernist house on a canyon road in Bel Air or something. You find it at once very beautiful because it's so different from, say, the, the overwrought mansions down in the Valley of Beverly Hills. And you surely you think to yourself, I'd rather live here in the austerity of this multimillion-dollar house. But I, <laughs> in truth, that I'm used to cherubs on the ceiling <laughs> and, and that I would get lonely in such places. And that, you know, the, these walls, which are windows, uh, are not, it doesn't please me. There's a wonderful monastery on the, along the coast here, a Benedictine monastery uh, below Big Sur, which is a pretty empty space. And um, I suppose I, one could get used to praying in that space, partly because the, the singing is so good and, and the, the ritual is so rich. But it, its beauty is such that it seems to me within the magnificence of that hillside position that it finds itself in, you walk into the dark chamber of the empty space. But it seems to me to be a parody of Big Sur and, and that coastline, you know, because it is, it's, pretty, it's pretty clean mm. and pretty empty. Mm. Um, you write in your book that your first temple was the church we mentioned a moment ago, the Sacred Heart Church in Sacramento, where you worshipped with your family. But your second temple was the Alhambra Theater, a movie theater. Yes. It was... and, and you even go so far as to say, uh, I became a Christian at the Alhambra Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Another ornate space. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things about the Alhambra that really interests me now is, of course, this romance with the Arabic desert that already began with, I, I suppose, the sheikh. Uh, that Rudolf Valentino, who was, in fact, uh, had an Italian mother, um, I might have this wrong, Italian father, French mother, and was Roman Catholic, was in, in the imagination of, of Hollywood, the Arab uh, in, in his robes. <laughs> well, let it pass, okay? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> before you get too skeptical. And I think what Hollywood realized was that the experience of going to the movies was an experience with the exotic locale and that the great theaters that Hollywood constructed in those years uh, had these strange themes to it, like Grauman's mm. Chinese, mm. for example. You were going to the Forbidden mm. City, you mm. know. But for me in Sacramento, the Alhambra Theater was an encounter with Spanish Arabic civilization. I didn't, as a Mexican kid in Sacramento, I had no idea that I was connected to an Arabic civilization through my tongue, through my mother's tongue, through my father speaking, that Spanish already had within it three to 4,000 words which are etymologically related to, to Arabic. Like ojalá. Ojalá. Ojalá that, you know, that's going to be a nice day today in, in Santa Cruz. Ojalá. Uh, if if you know if there's money enough by the end of the day, we can all go to the Alhambra Theater and see the Walt, the Walt Disney movie. You know, uh, I hope that it will be so, or I pray that it will be so, or let's hope so. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, which which borrows from the Arabic Inshallah, the you know the the, the same the same premise, uh, but and the same word that my mother was saying, but I never heard, and maybe she never realized she was saying it. Ohala that she was speaking the name of God, the Arabic Muslim name of God, <laughs> uh, and that it was already there because for several centuries, Spain was Muslim. 
and that it is in me. At least it's on my lips, at the very least. And that within the Spanish, uh, Southern Spanish memory, there is this, this architectural, artistic uh, inheritance, which we gawk at as though it is past, when it may be, it may be already in our, in our future, you know. When you write that you became a Christian at the Alhambra Theater, what do you mean? I'm talking about the, the Bible movies that I saw there, and a lot of my imagination of the desert got constructed from movies that I saw, like The Robe or The Ten Commandments. Those movies had an enormous appeal, and they formed my imagination of, what shall I say, the origination of, of, of Judaism mm. and, and my own Christianity that comes out of that. Mm. Um, Getting back to a statement you made a little while back in this conversation that you also made in your book, that the terrorists on 9-11 were praying to the same God that you pray to. In what sense is it the same God? Well, it's the same God in the sense that it's a God that they understand revealed himself to the Jews. And that's the God that I worship and as a Christian. And in that sense, the same God. There is a lot of violence in Christianity uh, over centuries. Um, and there are people who who move from the, that profound statement of humility, um, my God, I belong, to, I belong to, to God, to the assertion that I control God, in which case he is my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems to me that that temptation to move from um, uh, piety and humility to arrogance and uh, domination is something that I don't think is new to Islam. I think it's maybe the most dangerous ingredient um, or temptation within religious experience. It's very, very dangerous to play too much with um, religious belief. It should make you humble and not make you uh, too proud of what you have. And um, I suppose I've, I've felt that day listening to the prayer I felt two things. One, I, th- I thought to myself for the first time, the world may end with a prayer, that some kid someday may blow us all up as a prayer. And I, I felt also that I was listening to the darkest voice within religion. And as a Christian, I know that voice. You make the point that the desert environment offers you know so little here on earth in the way of comfort, yes. that it does tend to give rise to a religiosity that looks to the beyond, to transcendence, to the afterlife, to heaven, paradise, and not to nature. Yes. And, well, on, on the other hand, I mean, for secular <laughs> America, it gives rise to Las Vegas, <laughs> an architecture in a society of total denial, where you, you go to deny, you, you, you go to deny uh, nature, you go to deny the, the, the lesson of, of the desert. Desolation is not is is mocked in, in Las Vegas, and you import into Las Vegas every sort of architectural motif, you know, pyramids, uh, uh, the Ty- Eiffel Tower, in order that you can comfort us to believe that in fact nothing is permanent, as the desert suggests, but everything is also a joke, as it does. There, there's the Eiffel Tower. What are you what are you weeping at? You know, you're staying at a hotel with Lago Como in in front. You know. Um, Las Vegas seems to me to, to just use the secular uh, for a moment as a as a, a another way of understanding that harshness of the desert's re, um, 
lesson. Increasingly, you're, you're seeing in the world, maybe Phoenix, Arizona, an architecture of denial. And, mm. and mm. I certainly, you know, I did it within the book, this, this, um, this chapter, which, which parodies the, the sentimentality of the green ecology movement, partly because I think it's what it doesn't acknowledge is how brown nature is. Mm. And it, it, it seizes too much upon spring as our meaning when it's in some way death has to be our meaning too. The the meaning of autumn or the coming of winter has to be our meaning. And that it, it becomes a little bit too coy with Mother Nature. And it does assume that it's all nice out there. Well, the, you know, the desert now is the fastest growing ecology in the world. And um, for us to persist in this notion of the ideal of green nature, when the task is really to live with a a nature that is harsh and difficult and not nice, it seems to me to be, you know, a little bit too childlike. There's so many themes running through my head right now because they come off the book, and this this refusal to, to be buried now in our society, uh, this inclination to want to be cremated and then to disperse one's ashes so that they are nowhere. Um, there's a strange desire now in the world to leave the earth. And I don't, I don't mean religious people. I mean secular people who not confront what nature is around us and to imagine nature in, in, a, in a quite different way. Las Vegas is, is, um, is, one, is one of my great desert cities. I would think Dubai. I don't know whether you've been to Dubai, but uh, no, Dubai is this. Is, it's, it's not a city defined by leisure so much. It's a city defined by business. And by this international airport, which is a, you know, which is an exchange point for much of the of Asia and the Middle East, it's like a space colony. Isn't yes, it? <laughs> but within it, the entertainment of Dubai is denial. Uh-huh. Everything uh-huh. about Dubai uh-huh. is, you know, let's go to the ice palace today <laughs> and let's ski today. But- uh, is it becomes this kind of exercise in in denying nature, in making a joke out of nature. Uh, we will we will laugh at at this landscape. And we're going to upgrade you, Mr. Rodriguez. We're going to give you here at our hotel, we're going to give you a, a penthouse view of the void. And you look outside your room and you're on the 80th and 9th floor of some dreadful hotel and there is nothing out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, said, you said something that's going to um, perhaps baffle or maybe irk some listeners when you said that the green movement isn't reckoning with nature and that there was this desire on the part of non-religious people to leave the earth. I mean, I would think the argument would be there's a desire on the part of those people who are looking forward to the rapture or to paradise, the fictional boy you mentioned who might pray the world out of existence yes. in order to enter the next world. Yes. Yes. That that's a religious impulse and yes. that we the the you know the lovers of nature are want to live here in peace on earth. No, you don't think so? I I think that there is a temptation in the world right now among people who otherwise love nature, to sentimentalize nature mm. and to, uh, to not realize how violent nature is and how, how, how puzzled nature is in our presence. Well, is it uh, unintentionally biblical? Is it looking to some kind of prelapsarian fantasy, some Edenic idea of nature? Oh, I think, I think in, in many ways. I mean, I, I, I buy my cereal from Whole Foods, so it's all organically uh, um, blessed. And on the outside of the box that I, I reach for every morning, 
there is a slogan from the founder of the cereal company, and he says on the box of the cereal, always leave the world better off than when you found it. Mm. Well, <laughs> that's an extraordinary hope because that is the prelapsarian dream that we are going to go back and we're going to reverse the fall. And before you die, you are going to make nature better off than when you lived. Mm. Um, it seems, and this is the criticism that you get against the environmental movement, uh, that it, it sees human beings as an imposition on nature and as not part of nature. Um, this book that we're talking about, Darling, uh, a spiritual autobiography, a collection of essays, takes almost as its starting point uh, the September 11th attacks when you started to think about religion a lot. And one of the things that uh, you noticed, and I'm going to uh, quote from the book right now, is that after September 11th, I'm quoting, it became easier. Apparently, it became necessary for many of my friends to volunteer without any equivocation of agnosticism that they are atheists. You found, at least in your life, a lot of people reiterating their their rejection of religion uh, as though 9-11 was associated with religion, which it was. It was. Uh, an extreme version. Yes. But and the, and the you remain— of the years since, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. We see that now in a religious way. But we should we should say that you have remained— is is the word devout wrong for you? But you've been a Catholic all your life, yes. and you still are. Yes, through With, thick and thin. Through thick and thin, but I have great devotion to other traditions, and I learned where I learn. And um, you know, I preach in Lutheran churches, and I I taught at a yeshiva university in New York, and I regard someone like Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi, as one of my teachers. Uh, as, as 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 a spiritual guide, and I've read all of his books and think about them all the time. It's not like I live in a in a you know in a in a medieval village of only one of one sound. So but, you're you're Catholic in the original sense of the word. Yes, I think ecumenical. It, that's right. In yeah. original, and I mean, mean Catholic in the in the in the new sense. I'm interested in atheism. I'm interested in the in the piety of atheists. I had a difficult relationship with Christopher Hitchens, um, and I. I sort of pick on him in the book um, at the end because I, I send Mother Teresa to heaven at the last page. Who <laughs> <laughs> well, he reviled. Uh, well, well, we worked together on a BBC documentary series called oh, Borders. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. Uh, not together on the same show, but uh. we, that's how we got to know each other's work. Well, in your book, you talk about encountering him at— uh, At a pen conference in New At York. a conference that was called— um, what was Re it called? Uh, 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 faith and Reason. Faith and Reason. By which pen, I think, meant— Faith as opposed to Versus reason. Versus reason. <laughs> exactly. But Hitchens, of course, was the arch-atheist, the guy who wrote a book called God is Not Great, who— Which was a direct repudiation of Islam. I mean, that's the— this, Their statement, this, Allahu Akbar, God right. is great. That's right. Um, and, you know, who said religion is stupid, it is uh, spiteful, it is noxious. You know? This is from the same Englishman who, who later became an American— but the same Englishman who who writes uh, in defense of the war in Iraq, something that you know that the, the nice leftists uh, sort of ignore, that was just Chrissy Hitchens doing his thing. Uh, we forget that Christopher Hitchens was uh, was deeply admired by Rush Limbaugh, as probably the most important uh, political uh, uh, analyst of of his generation. What I found interesting. Well, he made enemies on all sides. What I found interesting <laughs> about Hitchens in the Middle East was that he was essentially establishing a British colonial logic. He was arguing in the idea of Iraq such a, in a way that, that would have justified Winston Churchill. 
Now, I'm sorry if that offends people who watch Masterpiece Theater, but this, uh, <laughs> but this absorption in the English view of the world uh, and these lines that we have drawn in the desert as the, as the lines that the Arabs should somehow adhere to is deeply offensive to me as a, as a, as a semi-leftist in America. And it seems to me that the problem with someone like Christopher Hitchens, and I, I don't mean to demean his memory because he was very sweet to me in an interview on C-SPAN when he was, um, I had written a, 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 an angry piece when he, when he mocked in that awful magazine edited by a Canadian who wants to be English, uh, Vanity Fair. Um, he had mocked Mother Teresa for being ugly. It's a, a English public school boy humor. Americans would not. You could go to any prep school on the East Coast. You would never do that. But an English public school boy would would say that. Well, I, when I when I wrote the piece, he saw it, and um, he was later asked about it in, in on C-SPAN. And he, of course, he was very generous toward me. What a wonderful writer I was, and so forth. What strikes me was in, he because he's famously combative. Oh no, he wasn't in that instance. He's How as, interesting! He is sweet as as, as Princess Margaret. What 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 troubled me about that whole episode was, on the one hand, um, how the left embraced Christopher Hitchens for his atheism. In fact, what the left has done in America, maybe for the last fifty years, has rejected religion uh, because of sexual liberation, and over the issue that the Pope recently said the Church is too preoccupied by, uh, abortion and and gay liberation. Mm-hmm. So what you had the left more and more doing is conceding religion to Fox News, conceding religion to Jerry Falwell, and forgetting that religion has some essential part in the in the life of the country. For example, we recently had the 50th anniversary of the speech at the Lincoln Memorial given by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And it was something to remember that speech and to remember Mahalia Jackson, the gospel singing, say, crying out to Martin Luther King just before he started speaking. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And then he gives his speech that is just astonishing. And the country heard it. The atheists heard it. The agnostics heard it. The believers heard it. The Baptists heard it. The Catholics heard it. The Jews heard it. And we didn't fall apart, okay? Because what we knew at that moment was that there was something so epic in this determination of African Americans to find full equality in this country that only religion could give it its proper sound. That's what the, the, those Protestant ministers gave us in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Well, their steps up to the podium 50 years later are secular technocrat president, Barack Obama, to give a speech about the speech. And, and if you can remember one thing he said, there was no Mahalia Jackson. No, he's not, he's with, not with, incapable with, of intoning in a way that does sound like uh, a sermon it, when he wants it, to. It, yeah, maybe South Chicago gave that to him, but he didn't uh -huh. grow up with that tradition. Uh -huh. And he he doesn't know it. Uh, I don't think he, he didn't know it as a child. And you can, I mean, he just has a different rhetorical tradition. It's not neither better nor worse. But in that instance, he couldn't summon even an echo of what we had heard because he had no voice to, that, that, that rendered us related to, to the great vision of, of religion. You know, the polarization uh, between secularism and religiosity or religion these days is so sharp, and it's partly been driven by, you know, this resurgent fundamentalism that simplifies religion, uh, that, you know, gives us a pretty extreme version of, say, Christian tradition. 
And the left has recoiled from that, I think. But the left has its own fundamentalism, it mm -hmm. seems to me. And the left's fundamentalism uh, is, on the one hand, I think very generous in giving, uh, in, in, in seizing upon the emancipation of women and homosexuals. And since I'm one, I, I benefited from it. But it seems to me that the left has also lost um, uh, a concern for the poor, uh, which was traditionally its, its, its focus. I did a piece when the Pope Francis was... was uh, was named in Rome, a number of, of left-wing publications published pieces about his positions, his conservatism on abortion and gay marriage. Mm -hmm. But I, what I said in my piece is, are those the only two ways we can judge a person? <laughs> which is what he would later say himself. Are those the only two issues in which we can speak as, as Catholics? He was an enormously interesting man in his willingness to, to live among people unpretentiously. And there was a there was a, a preoccupation with poor people in in his ministry that was worthy of note. You would think the left would notice that. Well, I think a lot of people on the left side of the political uh, spectrum are taking notice after his recent interview in uh, an Italian Jesuit publication it was translated into translated into English and then published in America in a publication called America. And I want to talk to you about that interview, as a matter of fact, uh, shortly. But I think people are starting to see him as potentially very progressive and a big change. Time will tell, of course, but uh, I'd like to talk about him. But first, a question but that— can, But I say, just before you let the, the left wing off too easily, it does <laughs> seem to me— I wasn't trying that, to do that. That, uh, <laughs> that you, know, I, you know, I can't remember when I last heard a politician, whether it was Romney or, or Obama, say that our primary concern in this country is with the poor. All, they always talk about the middle class. It's it's this it's our, considered our, a political third rail. I that's believe right. that's right. Uh, and no that, one wants and to that, talk about it. I don't, you know, except among all time leftists in America, where you still hear talk of trade unionism and talk of food stamps and and the the desperation of the poor. Um, I don't think the modern left, certainly the the left that I know of, that's that has that talks about the fundamentalism of the right and its religiosity has any notion of just how um, secularism has 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 distracted them from a, a, a compassion for the poor. Now, I want to um, summon Christopher Hitchens' uh, voice from beyond the grave <laughs> and say that, you know, this this saintly woman who supposedly ministered to the poor in India kept them down. She offered them nothing more than, you know, communion wafers maybe, but not real f social economic uplift. She didn't raise them from their station. She offered them cheap consolations, right? Well, she sat with the dying. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> that was Christopher Hitchens, not me. No, 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 no. Oh, Chris, uh, as, as, you're, as you go from party to party uh, at Vanity Fair, I mean, uh, tell me all about it. Um, I think that it's it's the same problem that the, I was just describing the left is having. They, they, they only, I mean, she was a fiercely conservative woman in her theology and um and not nice but she was something she would pick those bodies of the untouchables out of the of the streets and would wash them and would sit with them as they died and she fed people and she uh she had a a clinic at she's still, it's still there at her at her convent in Calcutta um People called her on the street. They called her mother. She, uh, I remember when she came up to Northern California and she went to San Quentin Prison, a, a group of about 30 or 40 men were assembled in the chapel. Um, and she's a tiny little woman, 
this strange, strange haunted figure. And she went to them, and there are these men with these tattoos coming up off their necks, you know. And she she said, uh, you must look at the man standing next to you, at the inmate standing next to you, and you must find the face of God in his face. Well, <laughs> I heard that, and I thought, this is, this is, I mean, if she is, she if she's a conservative, she's also a radical. And um, it's that inability to, to say more, oh, he's against gay marriage, therefore, mm-hmm. when, you know, it may be that some of the great saints of the, of the world right now are these conservative people. I mean, I, sometimes they're really nice. You know, sometimes people who like Reagan are really nice. And um, some pe- and sometimes just being leftist and watching Bill Maher or whatever that man's name is on HBO doesn't make you nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is this concern with niceness, Richard? What's, where's this coming from? Well, I, I think there is this, this notion that uh, on the left that we are nicer than the people on the right and that they're really not nice. Mm. Well, I don't think that's true. Mm. Um, now, the question you must get a lot about your faith, about your Catholic faith, is you're a gay man. Uh, I'm the, not a gay man. I'm a morose man. I said that to Charlie Rose years ago. <laughs> Charlie Rose said, do you think of yourself as a gay writer? I said, no, I consider myself a morose writer. I hate the word gay. Uh, yeah, I hate- you use the word homosexual in the book, so I'm happy to use it. You are a homosexual man, and you write – actually, you use the word gay man here, darn it. I'm going to quote you. A gay man easily sees himself as expendable in the eyes of the church hierarchy because that is how he imagines the church hierarchy sees him. The church cannot afford to expel women. Now you're talking about women. Yes. But, but, uh, and I'll get to the, the full uh, gist of that quote in a moment, which is a whole other interesting facet of your book about the role of women in your life and the role of women in you know, gay liberation. But um, people must ask you all the time, you've hung in there with a church that in many ways made pariahs of homosexual men. You know? So wh- what do you say to that? Well, I've hung into it because it's my church. Uh-huh. Uh, I consider the church to be as much mine as the Pope's church. Uh, I don't see any need for uh, you know the old Irish redemptorist priest who's carrying on about sins of the flesh. I don't see any need to disqualify myself from the church and its sacraments uh, simply because somebody says that I, I'm a sinner. I, I think he's a sinner. And more to the point, the church has fed me more than it has withheld from me. The church was an extraordinary institution to be related to. Just as, you know, you talked about Sacred Heart Church in Sacramento, just to be on the altar of that place and to be, uh, you know, that's, that the scent of flowers that, on the high holy days, the incense. I mean, these were really gay pleasures for a little boy. This, were, this was coming close to some enormously enchanting kingdom to stand at weddings I would watch these couples get married, and I, I got a buck for the for weddings because you had to sweep up the rice from the front of the steps. But um, I remember once this young man became so weepy during the service, he couldn't get the words out. They were kneeling in front of me, the bride and groom. The tears were flowing down his cheeks. I looked over at the bride. She looked over at me. And we had a communication that was as deep and as interesting at that moment as his was oblivious. Um, that's the church that I belong to. I, in the middle of class, I, uh, arithmetic class, I would be asked to go to a funeral. 
attend a funeral. And I would go and put black robes on and I would go to a funeral. And I knew the, the rhythms of funerals. I knew who cried and who didn't. The closer you got to the coffin, the less tears there were. You got way, way back there. They were just going on and on about it all because they didn't have to change the diapers. But the people who had really confronted death knew what death was and they were, they were freed of it in some sense. It was a blessing, they would say. Well, I remember going to a funeral one day in the middle of arithmetic class. A, a young man had been found in a hotel room downtown um, and dead. Um, and uh, there were only two mourners. There was a young woman, beautiful young woman with blonde hair. And maybe her mother or his mother, a number of years older, sitting there dry as stone along the side of the, this cheap coffin. I knew cheap coffins. I knew expensive coffins. Well, by the time we got to the, the cemetery, um, there was nobody there to carry his coffin. So I carried death. It was the first time I'd carried death. I must have been maybe 10 or 11. And I carried the coffin, and I was trying to feel his weight. And it, he was both lighter than I expected and death was heavier than maybe I expected. I could feel his body moving. Earth that had been had been tossed up was this kind of orange-brown. There was still dew on the grass. I was like a young D.H. Lawrence. Everything was alive in the middle of death, you know. I could still smell the soil. It was that rich, you know. So I helped the other men put the coffin on the little bridge over the open pit. And then I drive back to school, and Father Cormac drives me back with the other altar boy. And I take my robes off, and I go back to arithmetic class, or by that time it's cafeteria. And it feels to me as though death belongs within a life. But at the end of the school day, I've, I haven't forgotten that event, but it, it, I have folded into everything else of the day. And somebody has taken notes for me in one of the classes so that I won't fall behind and so forth. Well, all these years later, somebody says, you know, why didn't you leave the church? How could I leave that place? It, it already, it formed me. It is, it is so basic to my identity that, um, you know, I can't, even my homosexuality was refreshed by the church. I knew that that was a gay church. I knew that there were a number of effeminate priests around me, none of whom touched me, none of whom in any way abused me. But I, knew, I wasn't oblivious to the world. I, I knew what, what the world was. And I knew that the iconography of the church, the naked Christ, uh, the, the saints in, in, in the ecstasy of pain, I mean, this fed my uh, an imagination, which, uh, what shall we call it, was queer. You know, I used to do a lot of other things by the time I got to high school, like I'd go to professional wrestling matches and boxing because I found them very erotic places. And nobody from school was ever there, which is my freedom. But it seemed of a piece, you know, to see uh, the death of a, of, a, of a saint in a painting at church uh, was very much like seeing a knockout at a boxing match. They were all of a piece, the, the intensity of suffering. I, in fact, I knew a man who had left the priesthood, left the study of the priesthood to become a boxer, um, he he was a fall guy in, in 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 South Lake Tahoe, not a very good boxer. But he he once said to me that he found God in the boxing ring because it was the only place where for a few minutes you had to live utterly in the present tense. There was no there was no future. There was no past. You were absolutely facing your opponent. Bang, 
And uh, I thought to myself, you know, maybe uh, because I really do believe that God is to be found everywhere in the gay bar, at the boxing match, in the church, at the uh, at at the at the graveside, um, everything seemed to me to be what shall I say, holy. What did you do then with the public face of the church that was preaching a kind of homophobia? It didn't preach that much to me in those days. Okay. I think it would later in my life it would preach it. You sat through it. You, you. Sometimes I walked out of it. This was as as I grew older and I was a man. But the churches that I attended tended to be li- liberal. Maybe I picked and chose that way. Um, but it didn't feel a church that was alien to me. Mm. And even even cardinals, William Leveda, who was the archbishop in San Francisco and later became a cardinal in Rome, and had a, a very difficult time there because he went out after American nuns for being feminists. And there was a pushback by American Catholics because it was outrageous after this period of male misbehavior in the church for a cardinal to say that the problem was the nuns who were in many cases doing the work of, of, of God. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the people knew it, and they pushed back and they silenced him. Um, well, I mean, he used to invite me to over to, for dinner when he was in San Francisco, and he knew who I was. He knew what, what I was. He he read my pieces with a lot of understanding and uh, with and and with a lot of gratitude, we never talked about homosexuality. He, but that's you know. I'm, so I'm going to Yeshiva University, okay? And I say what I say all the time. Will there be a problem with the fact that I'm gay? There's a long silence at the other end, and the woman will say, "Well, I've talked about it with the head rabbi, and the rabbi says as long as Richard doesn't talk about it." <laughs> I won't talk about it. So that's the compromise you have. It's like something you don't mention at a, at a dinner party, you know, by the way, you know. Um, and then little by little, it became possible at dinner parties to say it. But then Charlie Rose says, you know, are you a gay writer? And I said, no, I'm a morose writer because I, I'd <laughs> lived with a kind of irony about the world for mm. so long. Mm. I never talked to, mm. to my parents about being gay. Mm. And yet, you know, my partner with whom I've uh, been for 35 years. I don't even have a word to give him. I, I, he's not my partner. He's not my bride. We're not going to get married. Uh, we don't have a language as as radical as feminists came up in the 60s with Ms., mm-hmm. which was really thrilling. We need a new word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get married to him. I want something else. I want I want what Indians did when they cut their, their arms and then bled into each other, you know, to bond, the, to bond their, their, their bodies together. Uh, I want something as radical as that. Forget rings. <laughs> Who needs a ring when you can cut your well, cut your hand and then seize his hand in in yours? Consanguinity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you've you've solved my problem. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the new uh, face of the church, Pope Francis. Um, I've been waiting to to get a guest on the show with whom I could talk about this um, seemingly big. Development, and uh, you seem like the perfect guy. I'm sure you followed his every pronouncement closely. Well, I do and I don't. I mean, uh-huh. uh, I, the church is primarily female. Shall I say that? Most of the people in the pews are women. Most of the atheists in our society are men, and that's a very interesting sexual dynamic. That um, but there's a revolution in 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 Christianity right now, and women taking more and more authority from the church, demanding it. Um, Surviving the collapse of the of the of the church, 
and taking over the maintenance of the church, the running of parishes, women at you know there are no more altar boys. There are women on the altar at the at at the mass. I want women priests and. And should women leave the church until that happens? Well, I mean, that's their, their question to face. Uh, there's a nun who comes up to me after, in, in, in this book and says, you know, I'm not sure that I'm going to be here much longer. And I say, well, I'll, I'll stay here as long as mm. you stay here. <laughs> and um, I, I do think that this pope is both fresh after a scholarly, a very Germanic pope who wrote beautifully, by the way, I must say this, after a pope, uh, a Polish pope, who was really interesting uh, for two reasons. One is he, he issued 92 apologies to mm. the world for every every possible sin. Talk about the sin of Islamist terrorists. We, he apologized for our, the Catholic Church's sin against Native Americans, against women, against Muslims, against Jews, just everybody. I mean, there was no one that he didn't apologize to by the end of his, his tenure. But the more interesting thing about him uh, at the end was that he died in public at a time in which um, people, when they die in America, we we close the door mm. or they close the door. Um, in the chapter that I write about this, Transit Alexander, I talk about Marlena Dietrich at the end of her life, for the last 10 years of her life, when her beautiful legs gave way and no longer could sustain her sustain the, the, the myth of her beauty, the persistence of it. She she holds up in an apartment on the Avenue Montaigne in in, in um in Paris and wouldn't let people see her. Mm -hmm. She would sometimes come to the to the drapes and would open it slightly to see who was in the street below. But she became a prisoner of her own image on the screen. Well, not the Pope. <laughs> the Pope dies in full view and he's drooling and his his he can his head can no longer be sustained by his neck and it's crooked and he's coming down in that little trolley down the center aisle of, of the of the Vatican which is by the way decorated by homosexuals uh, to and fro um the great art of the Vatican is all gay art you know Michelangelo and Caravaggio who do you think these people were um anyway uh, so all these <laughs> these sermons against homosexuality in the midst of this this erotic homoerotic splendor Anyway, there he comes, and um, and the drapes open up, and we see this man dying in front of us, you know. And I think to myself, "Echo, echo, homo." You know, this is really, this is really thrilling. Behold the man. Yeah, that that this is no playing around with Hollywood. You know, this is no closing the drapes because she's indisposed today. You know, this is really what life is. What I said as an altar boy, what I would have said to you is the people are not weeping at the front of the front because they know what death is. They've seen it. Whereas in this society, well, in Sacramento, even in the 1950s when I was growing up, I was I was a paper boy. And when, a, when somebody died along my route, people, the neighbors would say that old Mr. Newman passed away, you know, and I thought, oh, well, what did he pass to? What did he go to the golf course and disappear? Nobody died on the street. They just they passed away, or they, or they passed. You know, they went from one tense to another. Um, but that word, which I just found so interesting, in, in it's the severity of that one syllable. He died. He died. Mister Old Mister Newman died last night. That world, that Pope was in, was was portraying. He was his his own great actor at the end of his life. He was Samuel Beckett. He was he was this uh, 
this character, the, 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 the actor Pope, who, may, who portrayed himself dying. And for that, I'm always grateful. But you're talking about Francis. Francis is not new. And he names himself after a great saint. A few years ago in New York, I was on a committee um, of judges to uh, award some one of those New York awards that the New York Times gets all breathless about. They always go to somebody from Brooklyn um, or the tri-state area. That's what New York does. It rewards its own children. And you and you just live with that as a writer in California. Um, but I remember um, – I'm distracting myself. I see I got into that other business about awards – but Francis is not new. Oh, no. There was this biography on St. Francis, which I thought was really good. And I wanted to be one of the nominees for the, the great award. I won't tell you what the award was. A big deal award. Banquets. <laughs> mentioned in the Times, you know, some money and so forth. And I said, this book is really good. And this book – and the other judges said, no, but that's, that's a book about religion. And I said, well, so what? You can't write a good book about religion? No, you can't. That, you know, that it, will, it will offend too many people. This is a secular mentality. It will offend people to, write, to read a book about a religious figure, St. Francis. Well, I read this book. There's a, there's a story he tells about himself in, near Assisi on a country road at a time uh, when uh, lepers had to announce their presence as they come down the road by making this noise, a kind of a kind of pebble within a gourd. And so there was a kind of a tinkle of this noise. So people could back away. So people can keep their distance. Mm-hmm. And Francis, when he hears it and sees this man in, uh, in, in these rags coming towards him, he does what we all do. He moves, uh, he moves aside and he, 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 he lets him pass. And then he stops. And then he decides... This is the great conversion, and it happens all the time. I saw it with nurses and doctors and hospitals during the AIDS epidemic. There came a moment when people who would not be touched by anyone got touched by these people. He comes back. He stands in front of the leper, and he frightens the leper, and he reaches for him, his broken nose, which is barely there anymore, and he, uh, he touches his lips. Well, you know, people in 2013 say, well, we have this new pope who sounds pretty radical to me. <laughs> I think Francis, the real Francis, was the radical. So so the new Pope Francis is back to basics in a way? That certainly is a tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have said that's the Mother Teresa tradition, too. Mm-hmm. That's what she did to a lot of mm-hmm. sick and dying people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people who will not touch sick people. I know a lot of people who are afraid of that. I mean, will not change a diaper, you know, granny's diaper and— will hire Filipinas to do it and will keep keep their distance from the brownness of our lives, from the fact that we all end up not green in the in, as we die, but brown. Mm-hmm. Part of the soil if we're yes. buried. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and not as smoke necessarily. No. Um, <laughs> so, Richard, how do you regard your own death then? Well, I, I, I talk briefly about my experience with cancer in, in the book. Um, in the Motorcycle Diaries, um, a wonderful uh, memoir of Che Guevara's life, um, there's a, a, as told by the, his friend, um, there's a, a scene in a, lepros- a leprosorium, I think, um, a, a leper colony in South America, where at one point he swims across the river to get to it. And it's run by a group of nuns. And, um, 
and here are all these people. And there's something about, there are people, everybody who's listening to me, I don't care whether you take offense at my being intolerant of Christopher Hitchens or, or Oprah Winfrey, but everyone <laughs> knows, everyone who's listening to this voice knows some people who, who, who are not afraid of, of suffering and pain and who move toward it. Rather like those Filipino women in the in the Manila church who moved toward the crucifixion to touch the feet of God, as on the cross, um, a lot of us are recoil from it. We can't deal with it. We you know we'll come back tomorrow or, or um, whatever whatever excuses we use. Well, I find that ability to to confront life to be really the essential meaning of life. So when you had your cancer diagnosis... Oh, yes, my cancer. And, and, and by the way, I mean, people will want to know, what's the status of it? The status of it is that it, it reminded me that I'm mortal. And but I mean, is it, is, you had surgery and... I had surgery, and it was two inches long, and they, the doctors refused to use the word cancer. Hmm. And I used to go to this um, uh, health center uh, run by UC and sit uh, with these young women, a remarkable number of young women, a number of whom were bald, and, and children, little children, um, who were there with their parents and who were, had some kind of problem. Some of them were very thin. Some of them looked normal. I mean, they looked healthy to me, but then would disappear, and nothing was ever said. Uh, sometimes we would notice an absence. Then sometimes people came back, you know, and we would read People magazine. And I felt a little bit like Che Guevara swimming across the river, that I had swim, I had swum to the other side of the river. I I have been to a lot of deathbeds during the eight years, and I I knew a lot of men who died when not too many people wanted to come, especially parents, um, and many of them didn't, didn't even come to funerals, or even if there was no coward or Cole Porter songs at the memorial service. Um, so I I know. I know that. I I know I know the way, you know, death can frighten people, but what it did for me is that it gave me. One January, I saw a very good friend die on the fifth floor of St. Mary's Hospital, and six months later, I was two doors down, facing this operation for cancer. And suddenly, after all of the years of seeing friends die, often terribly. You know, people who didn't want to die, who were afraid of dying, who were screaming in pain, people you couldn't give enough morphine to. Um, and sometimes you had to do it yourself because they just, they wanted to die at home or and the doctors wouldn't be there and you, the nurses just gave you the morphine and say, they would say, um, mordantly, give him as much as he needs. So you would shovel it down his throat until he quieted down. And then sometimes they would start singing. In, well, there I was at St. Mary's Hospital on the fifth floor, two doors down, where my friend Will died. And it occurred to me that I was not going to do what I had done all those nights with AIDS friends. I was not going to get into a car and drive away. I was there. I was in the hospital facing this disease, which doctors didn't want to name. They kept calling it a growth, as though it was flowers in somebody's garden, you know. It was not a growth. It was cancer. I keep saying, "What? What is it?" I said cancer. Yes, they would say. Probably. Well, we'll know when we get the biopsy. Well, I guess what I feel now is that I'm I belong to a citizen of a different country, and when I I my my cancer came during the Olympics, 
and you were watching these beautiful bodies run and jump and swim, leap. Um, and I knew I didn't belong to that anymore. And I never did really as an athlete, but I, I belonged to a society of the wounded. And now I'd look for it. I'd look for people who have gone through illness. You know, these parades, these pink parades of cancer survivors and people who have lost people to cancer. I, that's more what I have in mind now in my life. I'm attracted to, to suffering. Huh. I want to talk about the uh, title essay of your book, Darling. Very interesting essay. <laughs> uh, about the impact of women on your life. Particularly heterosexual women. I heterosexual women, yes. And it's addressed to one in particular. Darling. You refer to her as Darling. Um, she's dead now. Yes. You were really close. Very close. She She even maybe had a thing for you? Let's just say that on a lonely night, even I look good. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I find out about rich people is that, uh, you know, toy boys don't know this. I mean, they can be hired in a hotel room anytime. But the people who stick around are people who amuse, people who who uh, flatter wealth by being curious about it, by asking them about their, their lives and their their possessions. I've been close to a lot of very wealthy people in Los Angeles mainly, uh, especially when I was younger and I was more charming and I could make people laugh. And that's how, we, that's how I met Darling. I met her through her husband, curiously enough. And this lunch, which I, I portray, late afternoon lunch in Malibu over club sandwiches, was on the day that her divorce was finalized. And um, it begins with a kind of... Um, uh, exploration into the uses of the word darling from uh, darling as a kind of 1950s sitcom husband talking to his wife darling um, you know are we going to the Bradshaws tonight to um, this gay affectation which I have used for many years with women um, as a young boy I knew I loved women I loved being around women I loved talking to women I knew that that was dangerous in a high school experience, even in college, that a, a boy who liked girls, liked to talk to girls, was too much in the presence of girls, was queer. Hmm. And boys knew it immediately. They would smell it immediately. So all that joy that women gave, the, the laughter we had together in those years was always at a price, you know. It was like belonging to the drama society. <laughs> that was my drama society. Well, later in life, it became a kind of it became a genuine joy in my life to have so many women friends. Um, I was a walker. You know, their husbands are away. We would go to the symphony. We'd go to the opera. Uh, we'd go to play. We'd go to plays. We'd go to restaurants. What bored him interested me. You know, um, I would drive his, his BMW or his Mercedes, and um, we had a great old time. Sometimes I was the third in the, in the party. I was, we'd go on vacations. Well, uh, this conversation that takes place in Malibu, over lunch, club sandwiches, which she loved, um, really does move into the, in, well, it moves past this Arabic word, which is habibe, which is what men call each other. This, this my beloved, you know, when, when a man called me that for the first time at a cafe in, in, in Cairo while he was holding my hands, I thought I would faint. 
And then I realized that everybody does this. That You can call almost anybody, one man calling another one. There's a word you address to a woman, which is the same word, habite, basically, uh, which you would express to your wife or your sister. Is it like saying bro or dude? Well, it's a little. It's if you can hold your brother, your bro's hand when you say it, then yes, it's the same word. It's this thing that happens, uh, man love. Okay, and um, and its and its intensity is exactly related to the fact that women are otherwise segregated from that world. So it passes through that that discussion into the world of Roman Catholic nuns. And um, men in the Castro district dressing up as nuns and calling themselves as this is a perpetual indulgence. And through this whole concern, not simply with gay marriage, because I'm not interested in gay marriage as much as I am interested, as it turns out, in the liberation of women. Because what I've, what I've come to the conclusion of is, is, this, is this realization that the source of my liberation as a, as a homosexual man was women as early as certainly the 19th century, taking to the streets, demanding the right to vote. Not as mothers, not as wives, not as, not as uh, spinsters, but as women de de uh, demanding the right to be equal to men in the, in the public world. You know, New York, for all of its charms, and I love New York, and I love being in New York, and I love, I'll be teaching in New York for a few weeks in the fall, but it is, it is fatally flawed by its self-absorption. And in gay history, what passes as gay history on the pages of of the New York press, which is 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 that the gay liberation movement begins with a riot in the late 60s and 70s. In Stonewall. Stonewall. Yeah. And this is where my liberation happened. I don't think so. I think my liberation begins with these women, with these women demanding the vote and getting out of the house and and wanting to be regarded not as somebody's wife, but as a, a citizen fully uh, equal to any man in the public realm. That seems to me to prefigure, in a way that, uh, that Oscar Wilde doesn't, uh, it, it prefigures my own coming out of the closet, her coming out of the kitchen. The suffragettes, the early feminists, were starting to dismantle the system of gender relations that were also confining or excluding homosexual men. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that men... Took you know I think Stonewall is an important event, but it was it was about leisure, about the freedom of my leisure, the freedom of my, of, of the nighttime. What these women were doing was really moving into the public realm, which now we assume with 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 homosexual uh, Americans that we have a right to be employed, to get medical services, to to be citizens in in the great world, and I think women. Women foresaw that, and the odd thing, you know, the Roman Catholic nuns—they began—they they were cloistered from the Middle Ages, but they be, they are allowed by men bishops to organize as uh, women who can work in public, schools, orphanages, hospitals, um, and that begins in the 19th century, when the Sisters of Mercy, uh, who are by the way, honored outside the state capitol in Sacramento with a monument because of their work in California, in Pioneer, California. And by the way, you were about to say when I jumped in there that you dedicated the book to them, The Sisters of Mercy of the Americas. Yes. Yeah. At a time in which, you know, there is this gay interest in dressing up as nuns, 
um, this group of men, men in San Francisco who dress up as this is a perpetual indulgence, all right? And um, I first didn't like them, and then I thought to myself, well, why not? I mean, partly because it, when those nuns came to San Francisco in the 19th century, the, those Irish women, young young women, a number of them, um, they came and they they had no place to go. They slept on the floor in St. Patrick's Church on Mission Street in San Francisco. And a number of anti-Catholic newspapers at the time said, who are these women? You know, the women of the street. These women, in fact, were protected by their robes, rather like Muslim women, protected by their robes not to be married mm. or not to be judged as women. Mm. They could not be touched, you know. And that that it was that same logic, in, as, as as applies maybe in Riyadh today, when you when you instinctively as an American reach out to 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 shake the hand of the the the, the woman you know who's the wife of the, the the friend you are with, she recoils because she has no way of touching your skin, mm. and so she puts her sleeve down, and then oh. and then will touch you only uh-huh. with, through her sleeve. Uh-huh. Well, the sisters of mercy didn't show us their their hair or their legs. Or their 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 up their arms, you know. They they lived in that cloistered uh, costume of of robe of black robes, but they were free. They were free to wander San Francisco. They were on the Embarcadero in the eighteen fifties, ministering to young men who had who had uh, smallpox. They were they were setting up tent clinics in the in the Presidio after the earthquake. They were in every way feminists, although they would they would probably recoil from that term. Um, they were probably very conservative women in their in their in their religiosity, but they were true feminists in the sense that they took no um, no limitation on their public life. Their, their private life was their devotion, but their public life was running a hospital. You know, before they were from my parents' generation, they were the women who'd gone to college, they were the women who'd schooling. And our parents didn't, you know, it would take them another generation to catch up to the nuns, by which time the nuns no longer had their logic and would begin to retreat in numbers and so forth, as as people like my mother ended up doing the work that they had done. But um, that's why I dedicate the book to them. And that's why the book, uh, that chapter about gay marriage and about mm. the place of women in the church mm. does concern, does concern mm. them. And it ends with Jerry Falwell remarking, you know, um, on... September 11th, that maybe God was offended. Maybe the reason for this attack on America was that, the, and he has a list of Americans who caused this calamity. He doesn't mention religious fundamentalists. He mentions abortion and homosexuality. Well, it almost ends with that, but it actually ends with a passage I'd like you to read, the very end of this essay called Darling. I cannot imagine my freedom as a homosexual man without women in veils, women in red Chanel, women in flannel nightgowns, women in their mirrors, women saying, honey bunny, women saying, we'll see, women saying, if you lay one hand on that child, I swear to God, I will kill you, women in curlers, women in high heels, younger sisters, older sisters, women and girls, without women, without you. That's my final address to my beloved darling. May she rest in peace. Let's talk about your writing, Richard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And how it fits in 
with everything else we've talked about, your faith, um, your opinions. You know, uh, for people who haven't read your essays, I think Darling might be a good place to start because it has so many elements that I think are very, very distinctive. It's wide-ranging, it's about big things, and it's also very particular about little things, about exact moments from your relationship with this woman, about your sisters. It's poetic, it's ruminative, it's exploratory, it's complicated. Um, and then it arrives at that coda that we just heard. Yes. Which is heart, really heartfelt. Yeah. I almost broke down when I was reading it. Oh, it's very touching, yeah. very powerful, yeah. um, which is why I had you read it. Um, you know, I, I rarely look at blurbs, but uh, one caught my eye, uh, an advanced blurb for this book by Sasha Freer-Jones of The New Yorker, talking about you. His sentences are reliable joys, liquid and casual. They slip in and out of philosophy and anecdote noiselessly, like people padding through an empty chapel, <laughs> expecting to hear nothing more than the sound of their own passage. I, that's true in the sense that I really have no expectation as a writer. I mean, I do. I have several friends and several people I love very deeply who constitute my, my readers. They are people I, I, I give things to. But I think of myself now in the world as increasingly irrelevant. You know, we even have to apologize for this word essay. You know, publishers always say, don't tell anybody you're writing essays. Because <laughs> like saying that you're writing short stories. You know? <laughs> it's oh. a bad word. They want, you know, a novel about growing up Mexican-American in, in Peoria or something. Um, that essays are are, are bad word. And, and um, don't tell them that you've written a book about death. Nobody's going to want to read a book about <laughs> that. And so I think, well, what, what does that leave us? <laughs> I've written a book of essays about death. Where, what, what can, you know, I, I don't expect anything. I really, and so when, when, when the New Yorker had that line, I, I think well, that's, you know, that's a miracle that that line exists, that, that, that he's recognizing that, that, that I'm, that I'm all almost alone in the chapel and that I'm writing sentences that I'm not sure will ever get read. I, I don't. I really don't have a confidence of belonging to the literary world anymore. I just don't. I was at Columbia recently, and it was like going back to um, to 1950s or something. And the, the, the students were so alive, and these were writing students, but they were just brimming with enthusiasm and. It was a big deal that I was there, and I thought, "Are you waiting for somebody else? Did you think that I wrote that story about Junior uh, and that that I'm really Dominican and that 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 you know I'm gonna I'm gonna amuse you with Junior stories? Uh, I'm talking, I'm writing essays that are not nice, and why would you want that? Uh, none of my work has been nice, and a lot of it has been uh, celebrated by right wing America. My first book, Hunger of Memory, which was a a book written against affirmative action and against bilingual education. Uh, my second book on on California, you know, people wanted to read Joan Didion, but people, uh, le you know, leaving their daughter on the, the median on the freeway and the, San, the uh, San Bernardino freeway. That's what California was. And I was writing about the missions. And then Brown... Um, Another book of yours, yeah. Yeah, it's another book, and it's and it really was so, you know, a chapter on cubism. Mm -hmm. Who's going to want to read that in this day and age? Okay, so you're you're a difficult guy. You're you're provocative. These you're, are these are not easily accessible cut, essays. Cut against expectations, and you write challenging essays. I think that's right. And you said, uh, "I write to delight 
the reader with complexity. Oh yes, and I I delight that word myself. delight is in there. I it is it is a pleasure to write these essays in the sense that I consider an essay to be a biography of an idea, how how an idea comes to be, how it exists through time. A darling, for example, an essay like that, which takes several years to write, it moves through various quarters of my imagination, and. Um, and then you realize that this is all one imagination, that this, it all belongs to the same mind, moving across this landscape of men and women, you know, thinking as this, this childless man who has these, these, this sexual uh, abnormality, considering these women who are unhappy with men, you know, who are divorcing men, who are raising children without men, and watching, you know, with my sister outside the current theater, Cary Grant, kissing uh, Diane Cannon, that comes to me after Arabia. You know, that memory comes to me after Arabia. And the, that's the way the mind works. It, it doesn't work chronologically. I didn't start with a memory from the 1960s, Cary Grant on Geary Street that day, kissing Diane Cannon. That memory of Diane Cannon and Cary Grant comes after writing about being in the Middle East and hearing men calling mm. me Habibi, you know. Mm. Um, but these essays are not just you spilling stream of consciousness uh, onto the page, they're highly crafted. Oh, they're, yeah, and they're governed by ideas. They're right. governed by what, what is thought, um, both the question and what is it that you are thinking, you know. Um, and they're meant, I think— That's uh, really nice of you to say that. <laughs> it really is. I mean, because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't live with that. I, don't, I, I, I worked for many years in the news hour. I worked for 18 years in the news hour. McNeil Lair, yeah. Yeah, writing essays that were like, Oh, 350 words. Right. There are still people who remember those essays. Um, we were booted off the show. It was the end of the essay, and nobody needed them anymore. We needed to have online, you know, you want to continue this discussion with this dreary senator online. So they booted the essays off, and that was okay. I, I worked too long on the essays. I looked terrible on television. I looked, I looked like a... <laughs> You know, like if you if I was selling used cars, you would never buy one of these cars. In any case, there are still people who come up to me all these years later and will remember you did this essay on something, and then they'll re rhetorically remember how it worked, how it oh, moved from wow. that. That's wow. just amazing to yeah, me. It is, but it tells me two things. One is that people out there are really lonely for ideas. You know, all we have is Obama and the right wing and Tea That's all we talk about in America in the public realm, okay? And celebrities. In celebrities, yes. <laughs> celebrities on drugs. <laughs> celebrities <laughs> overweight. <laughs> you know, I've lived in, in London off and on for many years, and I love the tabloids because everyone that you've always admired on the screen will sooner, sooner or later will show up in the tabloids in a swimming suit on the day when they were least prepared to be in a swimming suit. And the Daily Mirror will be there. You know, they will be there to... To see the fall of kings, you know. Um, I love England for that. I love its meanness. It's Christopher Hitchens' meanness. I love its, 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 the, the, there's something about the British that takes delight in the fall of, mm. of the royal who, who, mm. who was wearing high heel shoes last night and he fell and hit his head, you know. There, there is great delight in that. Oh, well, um, they'd like to take the powerful down. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Behead no, them even. <laughs> I, yes, indeed. But, uh, I don't, these uh, these essays, as they, as as you suggest, are very disciplined. Sometimes, especially as you get older, you begin to think, you know, this this is not the way the world is working right now. This, I I don't I don't know enough about 
I used to be a part owner of a bookstore in San Francisco, and one of the Rolling Stones, um, I think with the drummer, who was a very, very literate man, he'd come into the store with his wife, I guess, and they would buy complicated books. Um, this is a bookstore that went out of business, and this is what I'm telling you, that mm. it was surrounded by books that I loved, and it's gone. Mm. And it's gone because, I don't know, people aren't buying those books, or people are buying them online, or whatever it is, that world is gone. And all of our great readers began to die, these older women in their 80s, society, society women who use bookstores as an educational tool. Mm. You know. Tell me what to read. This book is this book about the French Revolution. Is it is it something I would enjoy? Is it something I would understand? Is what they're asking. <laughs> and you would help them. And you would say, Did you like that book? Oh, I loved it. Does has has she written anything else, you know? Well, those stores died because that kind of enterprise went the way of what? The way of all flesh. We turned brown. It's an empty store now. It's been emptied out for four years. So you 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 get older and you think to yourself, well, you know, the people I used to know are dead. Darling is dead. Uh, the people who used to be come to that store are gone. They've died. I remember when I wrote my first book, Hunger of Memory, I was on the Today Show. And uh, there you, I found myself on the Today Show, a book that had been rejected by nine publishers and got, re, got published by a small Boston publisher and then got reviewed on the front page of the New York Times, although my politics were apparently left right of center, um, there I was talking to uh, Rod Steiger about that bitch of my wife, his ex-wife, Claire Bloom, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the country singers, Cottrell, what's her name? Uh, Lena Cottrell, whatever her name is, uh, Barbara Cottrell, Mantrell. She's winking at me, uh, you know, be you over me. Rod Steiger's shoulder. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is pretty neat to be a writer, to be in the green room at the Today Show. Well, you would never be a writer now. You would never enter Today Show unless you've written, you know, a movie star memoir or you yourself are a movie star who's written a very bad book. They would bring you on. Or if you're James Franco, who's written a book of poetry, then you'd be on the Today Show. But um, that conversation America used to have about ideas the seriousness of ideas, the the interest we would have in listening to someone like Norman Mailer talking about the world. It's gone. I don't know anybody who's doing that anymore. Um, you mean in pop culture, right? Well, where's the high culture? Well, it's, it still exists in books. It exists in some very smart, and don't grimace when I say this, some very smart blogs, for instance. I'll believe you. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'll assume that you're telling me something that's true. And on the radio, Richard, on the radio. Oh, on the radio, it's true. It is true. No, 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 no. This is not a plug for NPR. This is a plug for the voice. There is something so compelling about a voice. Because mm. um, a lot of the essays I did for television, in fact, were radio essays, too. They would be broadcast mm. on the radio. Mm. And I know that the, the readers, or li listeners would respond most powerfully to pieces in which there was no distraction of images. They just were listening to a voice. And this voice that I have, sort of a Mel Torme, uh, two, and more, two o'clock in the morning, New York uh, winter voice, uh, it's, not a, it's, it's a strange voice. And it's so unlike the voices on, on radio that people stop and hear it mm. uh, in, a, in some way. Mm. I don't flatter myself with saying it. It just, mm. it just mm. is the case. Mm. Um, You're writing, you hinted at how much work you put into it. You said the essay Darling took several years I know you weren't working on it continuously during that time, but you put a lot of work in. Oh yes, and I, it was always part of my imagination. I was always thinking about it. And and what we get 
is a composition. A composition in the sense that a Bach fugue is a composition. That's right. The thought is dense. The thought is is serious. But the movement and the shifts are also very much a part of the product. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to read another uh, passage from the book. This one's from an essay called Transit Alexander, another complicated, challenging essay that moves from one place to the next in big leaps. And uh, we were talking about the musicality of your work. This, in part, deals with music, this passage. So if you wouldn't mind reading it. Sure. Now we will cut the wind from the tree. This entails killing the tree, cut at the base, Birds fly upward. The tree may experience sorrow after its hundred amber-blooded years. Cut the tree in sections, twelve feet long. Cut one of the sections lengthwise to appraise its grain, its diseases, indecisions, parsimonies. Some years are deep brown cellos. Some lie some violins. Some years are mantles or pillars or transoms. Some are plows and spoons for stirring. The rest is broom handles, toothpicks, clothespins. The rest is firewood and paper. Take a block of the finest grain and carve of it a scroll. Make a thin slice of a softer grain, as thin as ham, and then another, and cut from these two scarab shapes for front and back. Cut it some gills bow its belly, and thump its back. Seal, sand, varnish, string cords through the frets of its neck. We will recompense the wind and the leaves. We will make music. Hmm. So a, a passage there about sculpting a violin or a cello from the wood of a tree, and killing the tree in the process. Killing the tree, yes. Uh, <laughs> Which is a brown thing to do. And making, and making, <laughs> Not a great thing to do. <laughs> and not making music. It made me wonder just what you had to sacrifice, give up, maybe kill's too strong a word, to, to come up with prose like that in the process of becoming the writer you are. I feel, it's, I don't feel it that way. I feel it a certain self-indulgence. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to a lot of the kids at Whole Foods who want to be writers and want to be, who are writing music, performing music, and who worry a great deal about the world they're living in that swallows everything that we used to call copyright. Um, I, you know, by virtue of my generation, I worked for newspapers where I was paid for my work. I wrote pieces for magazines, many of which don't exist anymore, um, which paid me. There is uh, usually on Mondays from my agent in New York, uh, a royalty check for some piece somewhere in the world that was used. And you can support yourself that way. And it seemed to me very lucky to have been born when I was born and, and to write when I was writing. I don't know whether it would be possible for me to have the 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 energy to write to a culture that is not so interested in the written word, um, that doesn't even understand the the potency of the page as it exists in one's hands, in which literature now has become ether on a screen, you know. Um, it seems to me that um, my good fortune only under, underscores um, 
how uncommon my life has become and to indulge my fetish in writing these essays. Uh, and then to go to Whole Foods and to meet people who don't get books published because New York is not publishing or that publishing house got bought up by another which is not doesn't need that kind of book right now, you know. Um, I don't go to a university now without saying something like that. And I know those students hear it. I see it in their faces that the enterprise of being a writer is not so easy now. And it was much easier for me. The glamour of being a writer is not so easy now. I live in a neighborhood in San Francisco where these young geniuses go off to Palo Alto or Mountain View on these dark buses at five in the morning. It's like Darth Vader. To Google and Facebook. Yes, and they (laughs) swallow everything they can get. They swallow up uh, all of our breath, all of our singing, all of our dancing. And they they will be the ones, because they stand at the doorway, they will be the ones to make profit of of it, and um, I find it, I find it not only obscene, but I find it a crime against another generation of writers. Hmm. I'll agree with one thing you said earlier. You are not a gay writer. <laughs> <laughs> you are indeed morose. I had a kid from <laughs> from to, to Turkey the other day, who was couldn't get over the fact that my homosexuality, and he said. I don't I don't know how to read these essays. He said, Are you a bottom or a top? Oh no. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um well, you know, I think you've answered one of the big questions, um why you've stayed in the church, what the church means to you. But um I thought of another passage that gets at it also. And uh Once again, I'm going to pass your book your way and ask you to read. That woman, five rows ahead on this side, red beret. Her husband died of kidney cancer last year, and yet she is here. The world ends. He is gone. She is here. I pray for him, her husband. What can that possibly mean that I pray for him? I mean in a feeble childish, desperate way, because there are people I believe I cannot bear to lose, and I imagine that woman feels the same, yet she has lost. I ask the hope of enduring love I call God, to accept the man that was, and to console his widow, because the man who was is yet part of this day insofar as he is missing, and she is here in her brave little red beret, Love is real. I have felt it. But I do not know how to live in love once and for all. Nor do I know if that is possible, though I have met people who almost seem to. Well, I wanted to ask at some point about the relationship between your writing and your faith. And that passage, to me, got as close as I could come to understanding it. The other thing, it's, you know, as someone who grew up in Sacramento, I was long aware of Joan Didion. Joan Didion writing in Sacramento, albeit on the south side of town, uh, convinced me that Sacramento could be written about, that it was the stuff of literature, because she was a writer. And I knew it as a, I knew it as a kid reading her stuff. I read it first in Holiday Magazine, a travel magazine of, of those years. 
when her husband died, I knew John Dunn slightly. Um, he was a very outgoing and uh, lovely Irish, boisterous man. And I ran into him at various times over the years, and um, he seemed exactly opposite to, to what she was. She was small, quiet, diffident. She seemed like she wanted to get out of wherever they were standing. Well, he died suddenly uh, when they were having dinner together, having just visited their daughter in a hospital on the Upper East Side of New York. And I thought to myself, what is she going to do? How does she continue writing? Because the question that now strikes me about my partner, my Jim, is how can I write a sentence without him? How can I write uh, in a world in which he is not there to read it? Um, and uh, when she wrote her book about her husband's death, I was so thrilled by it and so moved by it that she found the confidence of the line to continue writing into the silence that I thought it is possible to do that. When I saw it, see the lady with the, with the red beret in church who comes alone now, her husband had the cancer that I had, but he died, kidney cancer. I didn't. And I wonder, how does her life go on? I wonder, how will I write without Jim to read? It is all a mystery to me, and um, there is something about this whole process that convinces me that we complete each other's work and that when we get very strong in our own voice, we can even sound it when we are utterly alone. Hmm. Well, Richard, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's a great luxury to, to do this with you and to talk of books and ideas and sentences. And um, I don't know whether I'll be around to do this again. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to write. I, there's some pieces I'm writing. But as Jim, Jim said to me this morning over the phone, he said, just enjoy it. This might be the last time for us to do this, to drive down to Santa Cruz and talk about a book. Um, I live now with that sense of mortality. And not that I'm dying, but I am dying in the sense that I'm human. Um, so this is one of those happy days uh, to talk to you. Richard Rodriguez, his latest book is Darling, a Spiritual Autobiography. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I will be back next week, and we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. 